Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 245 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Starseed Revolution, The Awakening, an interview with Dr. Richard Horowitz. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Dr. Richard Horowitz has earned the reputation as the Lyme disease doctor to the stars. After treating 14,000 people with chronic Lyme disease, he has written a number of books based on the patterns of healing that he's observed. He's recognized that healing requires physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing. His first and second Lyme disease books achieved prominence as New York Times bestsellers. And now he has written his third book, The Starseed Revolution. This is a book that recognizes physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing is necessary not only on an individual level, but on an environmental level. This book is a beautiful part of the evolution of Dr. Richard Horowitz and the patterns he's observed about Lyme disease and illness in the environment. Without further ado, we are really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, Dr. Richard Horowitz and the Starseed Revolution, The Awakening. Dr. Richard Horowitz, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Now we're really looking forward to interviewing you as well. So let's first talk about your three books. Um, I am familiar with all three of your works because I've read them all. So let's talk about each book in order. Um, why did you write your first book? Why did you write your second book? And now why have you written your third book, Starseed Revolutionally Awakening? You know, so the, the first book, Why Can't I Get Better? Solving the Mystery of Lyme and Chronic Disease. It, it's actually an interesting story. I don't think I've told people this, but um, it, it was probably about maybe 10 years ago because that the first book, uh, which was put out by St. Martin's and it was, I believe in 2013, it was a New York Times bestseller. Um, I was with my wife a couple of years prior and I was with her in Florida and we were having a conversation and I said, you know, honey, I've accumulated all this information over the years that helps people. If God forbid anything should ever happen to me, all of this is gonna be lost. I said, you know, I, I think I should just put it down on paper because, you know, it's so important for this chronic disease community. I've discovered um, tricks and solutions for these people. And again, God forbid something happens, it's gonna be lost. So I just started downloading uh, pen to paper. I wasn't even typing it up at the time. I remember sitting in Florida with a uh, spiral bound notebook and I just opened and started writing and filled up literally a couple of these spiral bound notebooks as like the first you know, edits of where the book was going. And it got edited over the next couple of years. But the first motivation was really just kind of sharing with the community to make sure that the work that I had been doing would not be lost because it was turning out to be so beneficial for people. Um, the second book, How Can I Get Better, which came out from St. Martin's in 2017, which was a national bestseller, that was based on the fact that um, dapsone combination therapy had appeared at that point. Um, after my first book, we didn't know about biofilms and persistroforms uh, when I had written my first book. So I realized that I needed to add in every couple of years, as you know, in Lyme disease, there's so much new information that's coming out. I mean, literally every week, you could probably quote a couple of new articles in the scientific literature. And I said, you know, this was so important what I was seeing about persisters and biofilms um, and some of the newer drugs that were coming out. I said, I have to write a new book, but instead of just focusing on why can't I get better, I needed to really focus on the solutions of how can I get better and give people the practical solutions with the names of the drugs, the dosages of the drugs, what herbs was I using? Um, what exactly do I do for detoxification? What companies do I use? So I figured that would really be a useful solution. And 
I included a couple of new chapters, but the biggest new chapter was actually on persisters and biofilms, uh, talking about dapsone combination therapy, because for me, it was revolutionary um, as far as helping to transform Lyme patients' lives. This last book, Starseed Revolution, The Awakening, uh, came about about four years ago when kids were coming in after finishing double-dose dapsone combination therapy. And this therapy, and we'll talk about it during the podcast, it has about a 50% success rate uh, with an eight-week oral antibiotic protocol, which had never been published before in the medical literature. It was a real boon for the Lyme community. Um, and these kids were coming in and I would say to them, hey, you're, you're over Lyme, all the abnormalities on the MSIDS map are better. What are you gonna do with your life? And routinely they would say to me, nothing. And I'd say, what do you mean nothing? You're like, you're 18, are you gonna go to college? No. Uh, you're planning on getting a job? No. Well, what are you planning on doing? Nothing. Well, why? Well, the world's gonna end. Why should I bother going to college or get a job? Now, I'm not one to miss synchronicities in life. And sometimes when the universe wants me to know something, it tends to hit me over the head with repeated lessons, which I'll call the law of synchronicity. So if I'm in my medical office and literally every day or every week, these kids start showing up with climate grief, which had never before happened to me, I decided after a couple of weeks of this happening, it's like, okay, I got it. And I sat down and I dove into the climate literature. I wanted to find out exactly what these kids were seeing, were hearing, were feeling, what were they reading that was giving them so much fear and anxiety that they felt like their lives were going to be over and it's not worth going on. And after spending a couple of months going through the climate literature, and this is again, this was at a time in our, in our country's history where that present administration was basically denying the climate. So I went through that and I went, oh my God, we're really in big trouble. Like we were basically in the early stages of a sixth extinction. We're seeing biodiversity species collapse. I'm seeing Antarctic glacial melt with flooding. We're seeing wildfires. We're seeing um, vector-borne diseases like Lyme getting worse every year. Um, we're seeing droughts and hurricanes and environmental toxicity and mold-infested buildings. I said, this is a disaster. So I sat in meditation. You know, I've been meditating for over 40 years. Um, when I was finishing medical school in Belgium, I had found... Uh, some Tibetan teachers, my fourth year of medical school, this was after meditating with the TM program and the Transcendental Meditation City program, my first couple of years in med school. And um, I basically went into meditation and I prayed to my spiritual teachers and I said, what do you want me to do for these kids? They're really suffering. The world is in trouble. How would you like me to help? So, you know, I'm sitting in meditation and I'm listening carefully and I hear, write a book to which I respond, and of course, this is you know conversation and meditation. What do you mean, write a book? I'm a Lyme doctor. Who would ever want to read a climate book by a Lyme doctor? And I hear in meditation, no, no, no. We want you to write a science fiction climate change book, to which I responded, you want me to do what? And it's like, yes, and I'd, we'd like you to make it funny. So I stopped and I listened, I went, uh, just to be clear of my marching orders here, because understand, this is not the usual stuff I hear in meditation. Um, I said, you want me to write a humorous science fiction climate change book, which explains the problems and the solutions for the climate in a humorous way that although I'll be discussing these really difficult scientific discoveries that would make anybody upset, I'm going to give a book that's going to make people laugh <clears throat> and give them hope and show them that there are solutions, 
We need to institute them. And along the way, I'm going to throw in a bunch of Lyme jokes because after doing Lyme disease for 35 years, I've also had it and I need to get out, you know, some comedy in there to kind of make poke fun a little bit at some of the institutions of what's happening. And I sat down for six months in meditation upstairs. I'm upstairs right now in my home. And I just started writing. I was like in meditation, looking at a blank screen as if I was looking at a blank movie screen. And I listened very carefully. And all of a sudden images started to appear and names of characters and, and you know, dialogue. And as I was downloading this book, I started laughing hysterically because of like what was coming through. And Rich, I know you, you read the book and you just finished it. So, you know, I mean, I don't, you'll, you'll give everybody kind of a sense of what this book is. But my wife, when she read it, she said, this has got to be one of the funniest things I've ever read. She was like hysterically laughing and saying, oh, my God, people are going to laugh. They're going to be educated about the climate. Um, they'll understand more about Lyme and tick-borne and toxicity. And you're going to give people hope. So this book just basically like birthed. It downloaded out of this experience of trying to help people that were suffering with climate grief realizing the world was in trouble and, you know, just asking my spiritual family, how can I help? And this book just emerged. And believe me, if you asked me a couple of years ago with my bucket list, I've been married to my wife for 26 years. <clears throat> and you said to me, did you ever want to be a novelist? Did you ever want to be a science fiction writer? The answer would have been absolutely not. This was not on my bucket list. I grew up on Marvel Comics. I grew up on DC and Batman and Superman and, you know, loved superheroes. Superhero mythology was always kind of what I grew up with in Regal Park, Queens, like wearing Superman capes and trying to take off from the sidewalks to fly. That's a whole nother story, you know, in my childhood. But not doing what I did, this literally came out of, we'll discover after time whether it was my wisdom mind or my crazy mind, right, to do this book. But fortunately, I got Simon & Schuster to pick it up, a really good publisher. Um, I, I got two editors who did a great job of helping me edit it because it was my first novel. And lo and behold, Starseed Revolution, The Awakening uh, became a reality. And I included in it, and we can talk about this in detail, some very detailed spiritual teachings you know, Rich, because you just finished, on how to work with the mind. Because when I was reading the climate science four years ago, it made me think about something that happened in Tibet 100 years ago when there was this enlightened Lama by the name of Kempo Gongshar. And Kempo Gongshar was a, uh, a monk at a monastery who in the 1950s looked out his window, saw the snow melting. Interestingly enough, the, the mountain peaks were melting. He saw this as a very inauspicious sign realized the invasion was going to be happening soon and that there was going to be tremendous death and suffering in Tibet. And while he was feeling into what was happening, he had a heart attack and died, fell on the floor of the monastery. And the way the, the story goes, this bird, who is an emanation of one of the protectors of the Karmakagyu lineage, Makala, this raven flew in from the window, got next to his head and started pecking through the channel on the top of his head. He all of a sudden woke up in complete enlightenment and started transmitting these teachings on how to recognize the nature, of, the nature of mind and be empowered. So I said to myself, you know something? My wife and I got these teachings. We were one of a hundred people during 10 years of going to Maine, camping outside, getting these very specific Mahmudra teachings. And I said, you know, if God forbid the climate goes south and we don't get these solutions that I've discovered instituted, these kids who are suffering, 
they're going to need to know how to work with their mind. They're also going to need to know how to empower themselves, to know how to literally change reality, to move things in a positive direction. So I included these, I can't call them secret anymore because they're in the book, but these, these kind of unknown teachings on the nature of mind have had to quickly awaken. They're in this book. So you wouldn't know it by looking at the title, but it's a combination of climate science and solutions and meditation and humor. And again, Rich, you can speak a little bit about it because you finished it, but that's kind of how the whole thing evolved. So let's walk back to um, Queens. Uh, and uh, we know from, from having a brief conversation with you the other night uh, that this book actually was something that was in the works for many, many years, even though you probably didn't realize it until recently, right? So you grew up in Queens and talk to us about, so, so that people have a full context for this book and, and, and how this book came to manifest. Um, talk about what it was like growing up in Queens and what your life was like and how that ultimately brought you to uh, medical school to the Lyme world, and then ultimately we'll take the next step into uh, Starseed Revolution, The Awakening. So, you know, th there are things I have never shared with the Lyme community, and this almost feels a little bit like coming out of the closet. It's um, it it's it's a little bit dis disconcerting and embarrassing, not so much that what I'm about to tell you is outrageous, but it's not something I've really shared publicly after all these years. So when I was growing up in Queens in Rego Park, um, I didn't know at the time I was a medical intuitive. I came in basically with certain abilities um, and I used to speak to God all the time. I came in extremely religious. So I lived across the street from Simon Schechter Yeshiva. I went to Yeshiva when I was young and I was extremely religious. In fact, much more religious than the rest of my family. Um, and every day I would at night um, and sometimes during the day, I would sit in my bed and I would speak to God, right? And I would hear things. And, you know, as a six-year-old, you don't know that you can't do this. It's like nobody said to you, you can't speak to God and, and hear things. So I used to have regular conversations with God. And when I was six years old, this one particular event happened, which I can remember so clearly um, and, and understand what I'm about to tell you. I don't want anyone to think I'm somehow special or that interesting by telling you this. I'm just telling you the facts the way they were. So one day at six years old in meditation, I hear in this conversation with God, you have come to save the world. And I, I hear this and I said in response, what do you mean? And I hear it again, you've come to save the world. Now, this made absolutely no sense to me as a six-year-old. And I asked again, what are you talking about? Like, I don't understand where this is coming from. And I didn't hear anything. It was almost as if it was very clearly in my mind. And then all of a sudden the communication got shut off. And very shortly after this communication, my parents got divorced. And it was a very traumatic experience for me. Um, and, and you probably know a lot of these Lyme patients that come in, they have emotional trauma. Um, and I talked about this the night before that about a third of the Lyme patients who come to see me, it's way more women than men. They've had physical abuse, they've had emotional abuse and they've had sexual abuse. And in this divorce, it was so emotionally difficult for me because I ended up, uh, my mother ended up being with my stepfather, who was a surgeon, who was a doctor, um, who probably in fact influenced me for, by becoming a physician. He used to take me to the hospital and I would round in Booth Memorial Hospital in Queens. He was a surgeon. I'd scrub up at like 10 years old going into the OR and he would be doing mastectomies and he'd be doing hip replacement. I mean, I was like in the hospital all the time exposed to medicine. But it was traumatic because this communication I had when I was young got cut because 
you know, as a kid, you don't know better. You think, well, gee, I must have done something wrong. Like, why would God punish me? Like, doesn't God love me? Like, why are mommy and daddy not together? You know how six-year-olds think. And so I lost this kind of psychic communication for many, many years. And when I was in Northwestern University doing my undergrad in biology, I started going back to meditation, going back to yoga, going back to Tai Chi, going, kind of getting back to my roots and getting back to it. Um, and then when I get into medical school, things were so stressful. Um, I started the TM program my first year of medical school and ended up then doing the TM City program, which was the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, where the last part of the program was yogic flying, where you like learn to levitate. And I said, oh my God, this is like Regal Park, Queens. I was, you know, had a, I, I had my, you know, Superman costume on at six years old trying to take off. And I said, oh my God, I may be able to finally fly. So I took this course and without going into details, it's not like I could fly around my living room. But what did happen is that the energy channels opened up what some people refer to as the Kundalini. And it, it's a very clear experience. You're your breathing starts changing. You start breathing at like 200 uh, times per minute. Um, and you actually feel this energy underneath you push you off the ground. I mean, it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, and everybody in the room, there were about 200 of us in Kent, England, when we were doing this last part of the TM City program while laughing hysterically and having fun. In any case, I did it for a couple of years, but I didn't feel more loving or more compassionate. And my fourth year of medical school, as I was, you know, still struggling because uh, it was a very stressful program. It was a seven-year medical program in the University of Brussels. My friend Bill from New York City called me up and said, hey, Rich, I know you're meditating, but there's a Tibetan center that's about four blocks from where you're living in Brussels. I think you should go over and check it out. The day that I went to the Tibetan center in Brussels, there was a Lama who had just come from the south of France. His name was Lama Gendon Rinpoche. And Gendon Rinpoche was there with a translator. And one of the people there, Babette, said, oh, yeah, come on up and meet Gendar Rinpoche. And I go into the room. Immediately, he takes my head, puts it up against his, and starts doing this chant to Tibetan for two minutes with his head against my... I'm not understanding anything he's saying. He finishes with the kind of sound that sounds like this. I have no idea what's happening. I thank him. I bow. I walk out of the room. He follows me out of the room. He looks me up and down, walks around me, starts laughing hysterically, walks back into the room, closed the door, and I'm basically dumbfounded going, what just happened? It turned out that Gendon Rinpoche turned out to be one of my main spiritual teachers. And I attribute actually some of the work I've done in Lyme disease to Lama Gendon Rinpoche because when I finished my last year of med school, I went to him when I was finishing school and I said, Lama, I'm about to become a doctor and go into the world. What is the most important thing you want me to know when I go out into the world? And he said, Richard, the most important thing is compassion. Put yourself in people's shoes, exchange yourself with others, do for them what you would want done and everything will go well. Now understand that every religion, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam, or any religion will talk about loving kindness and compassion as one of the basics of religion. But the difference here was, he was really stressing that if you worked for the benefit of others and did for others as you would have done for yourself or your family, it will go well. And when I moved from New York, when I finished my residency in internal medicine at Mount Sinai at Elmhurst and in New York City, 
Vassar Hospital gave me a job offer in the Hudson Valley. And one of my Tibetan lamas, uh, Lama Nrola Rinpoche, was in Wappinger Falls. And he said to me, oh, if you come up here, very good, um, you know, meditate. So in other words, I figured, great, there's great hospitals. I can be a doctor, a country doc. I'll, I'll do, you know, diabetes and hypertension. And I'll, I have my Tibetan teachers and I'll keep meditating. Little did I know I was moving into the largest Lyme endemic area in the United States. And that, you know, goes back to the late 1980s and the patients were coming in with EM rashes, 75% got better with a month of doxycycline or amox, but 25% weren't. And then I remembered the teaching of Gender Rinpoche. Well, these 25% were still sick. Well, if I were sick, I would want to find out what was wrong with these people. And there was this doctor in Belgium, his name was Dr. Rodzinek. He was probably, you probably read about him. I think I talked about him in my first book. He was like four foot 11 with the biggest brain I had ever met. And my last year in school, when we would do a residency in rounds, I said to Dr. Rodzinek, I need to study with you because you are the brightest internist I have ever met. You seem to have a grasp on differential diagnosis, how to pull things out of people to get you know, the right diagnosis and treatment. I studied with him month after month after month on my own time. We finished, you know, like rounds. I would go back in the evening. I would spend hours with this guy, getting this guy to download his brain so I could understand how he did medicine. And between Dr. Rodzinek and what he taught me and Lama Gendon Rinpoche with these spiritual teachings, here I was in the middle of a Lyme epidemic, you know, trying to figure out why people weren't getting well. And that was at the time when Joe Boriscano and Ken Liegner and Sam Danto were, you know, at Karen Forschner's uh, LDF Foundation. And I would sit in the audience and listen and go, oh, I've got a couple of new tools. And then lo and behold, a year or two later, you know, a patient would come in with drenching sweats in a wheelchair, paralyzed. And I just came back from the conference looking for answers for these sick Lyme patients. And it said to myself, this sounds like Babesia, this malaria-like parasite that, you know, I just heard about at the conference. It was not supposed to be in Dutchess County, New York. It was only supposed to be in Long Island, where you guys are. And I sent out her blood, and we decided to send out the ticks in the area to see. And lo and behold, a small percentage at IGENX in the University of Rhode Island came back positive. I gave this woman 10 days of Mepron and Zithromax. Lo and behold, she walked out of the wheelchair for the first time in five years after not being able to walk. And by the way, being on Lyme treatment with regular antibiotics for five years. It was Babesia that was keeping her sick. So what did I do? Because I'm a naive person who's well-motivated. I called in the health department. I called in the HMOs and the insurance companies. And I said, oh my God, you're going to be so excited. Look what I found that's going to help people. Little did I know, they came from the opposite direction and said, there's no Babesia in Dutchess County. You just spent $70,000 of our money on a disease that doesn't exist. We're going to throw you out of the HMOs. We're going to throw you out of the insurance company. I lost 2,000 patients in one fell swoop within six months. I almost had to close down my practice. I had to mortgage my house to stay open. I had to stop taking insurance because of what happened. I still had Medicare at the time. And, and all of a sudden, Lyme patients started coming to see me. Like They knew that somehow I was this doctor who had an interest in helping them, who is digging in the literature always trying to find answers for them. And every year, like a new answer came. So first it was Babesia. And a couple of years later, actually 20 years ago, I had already discovered Bartonella, Leslie Fine and others were starting to talk about it. And then a couple of years after that, I discovered heavy metals. 
that were getting into people's bodies, causing oxidative stress, looking like Lyme symptoms. Years after that, we discovered mold toxicity that was getting into people. A few years after that, it was POTS dysautonomia. They were, had autonomic dysfunction with low blood pressure. Um, years after that, it was leaky gut. So what happened is, in simply asking my spiritual family, how can I help? How can I make the lives better of these really sick, suffering Lyme patients? It was almost as if the universe, like a medical detective, I used to joke that MD used to stand for medical detective, you know, little by little every year, something new would appear. And that's how the 16-point MSIDS model came about. So, you know, my first two books of why can't I get better? How can I get better? Just came about through this motivation of trying to help others, right? Doing differential diagnosis. And, you know, and this last book, Starseed Revolution, came about from these kids with climate grief, again, just saying, well, how can I help? How can I make a difference? And same as of the MSIDS map, I discovered climate solutions that were not being discussed in the mainstream media. And I said, oh my God, that thing that I heard when I was six years old, I said, at first I thought when I moved up here, oh, God or whoever was speaking to me, I was probably Lyme disease. And then when the pandemic hit with COVID-19, I realized when I looked at the inflammatory molecules coming out from COVID, they were the same inflammatory molecules we saw with Herxheimer reactions with Lyme. And I said, why don't I try glutathione that we use for Herxheimer reactions? It worked. So I published the first glutathione article in the worldwide literature in COVID-19 in April, 2020, followed up on I think the third worldwide article on ivermectin because we looked at the literature. So, and then I said to myself, oh, well, maybe that's what that voice was talking about when I was young. It's like, I'm helping people in a pandemic. And then I started looking at what was happening to the world with the climate. And then I realized, you know, I don't think it's just Lyme disease and it was COVID-19. I think whatever I heard when I was six years old, this is the mission that I've now got to bring the Lyme community together and bring everyone together and motivate them that we've got this massive group of sick people who are wondering, like, how can we get the message out, not just for Lyme of how sick we are and solutions, but even karmically from the standpoint of how can we benefit the world, right? Because everything is action and reaction of what comes back to you. It's like, well, how do we motivate now the Lyme community to come together? for the first time and come together and see if we can benefit the world with these solutions for the climate and kind of head up and spearhead this effort. So that's kind of how things are evolving at the present time. So I have, I have a couple of questions about your foundational development. So you were, you were raised um, in a traditional Jewish family, although you were more religious than the rest of your family. So what were you studying at the time that you first heard God's voice? So, you know, this was at a time when I was praying every morning, putting on tefillin, um, praying to God. I mean, really religious. I mean, it's not like even my family, all my family members were doing this. Um, I would go to, you know, Marav and Mincha services. I would go because Yeshiva was right across the street in Regal Park until we moved to Bayside, Queens, where um, I was then valedictorian in my Hebrew school. Right. I mean, you have to understand, like I was really linked in. Um, and so I was studying, of course, basic history. But the thing that is I always wanted to understand the deeper truths 
of existence. I didn't just want to get religious, you know, thoughts from people. I wanted to know like the deeper questions of life. Like what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Um, what is really going on on a deeper spiritual level? And I had started looking at the time at, you know, some of these spiritual teachings that at my age, I could not get from the rabbis, right? Like, you know, Kabbalistic teachings were not being given to six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, although I kind of actually knew about them but they weren't available to me. And I really wanted more like the transcendental teachings of the underlying underpinnings of the spiritual side of the universe. So when I you know, got older, I started searching in other realms because I wasn't getting it from Judaism. I was just getting the standard things. And that's why I started looking at Hinduism. I started looking at Buddhism. Um, you know, in college, that was when Ram Das was around. I was reading Be Here Now and you know, praying to his teacher. It, I just kind of went on a spiritual journey because it wasn't just about religious. It was about kind of understanding, you know, you realize after a while, we're all impermanent. We're on this earth for a short period, right? And then we leave and you've got to ask yourself the basic question, like, what's the meaning of all of this? Like, why are we here? And, you know, what are we meant to do while we're here? And, if, you know, I, I got answers to some of those questions when I met Gendon Rinpoche for the first time. You know, I threw myself at his lap. That was actually one of the first questions I asked. And I said, by the way, Gendron Rinpoche, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? And he said to me, Richard, life is like a dream. I said, what do you mean life is like a dream? He said, you know how in the dream you're running from monsters and you're scared and all of a sudden you wake up from the dream and you discover, oh, it was only a dream? He said, it's like that. I said, Rinpoche, this all feels kind of solid. I'm not exactly sure how this is exactly a dream. He said, well, in human beings, you know, we have dualistic perception when you come in with a human body, good, bad, happy, sad, man, woman, life, death, everything is seen in dualistic opposites. But he said, when you meditate and you get to deeper stages of meditation, you go from what's called relative reality to absolute reality, where you can sit in the state of consciousness and instead of having relative perception of everything in dualistic terms, you actually experience life completely differently without the filter of the ego, of the I interpreting all of your experience. And in that state, when you reach that state, what happens is there are certain basic innate qualities that everyone has. Um, from their perspective, everyone is enlightened and you just kind of forgot. It's like clouds in front of the sun. You just gotta get the clouds away, but the sun is always shining, the light is there. He said, when you rest in the state, qualities of goodness, generosity, love, wisdom, joy, um, caring, compassion will naturally emerge from the ocean of consciousness. These are your basic qualities. And simply by meditating and having the right motivation to help others and doing this daily, your questions of existence of like, why am I here? And what am I supposed to do? He said, it will become obvious to you by just learning meditation and learning the kind of techniques that he taught me over the next couple of years. So it was really a spiritual journey to answer the deeper questions of life that kept driving me for all of these years. So were you, were you receiving anything when you were studying the sacred word during the early phases of your spiritual development? Uh, could you explain a little bit more like what exactly? Well, you, you were studying the Torah, for example, during your, yes. during your childhood. Um, and you do in your book speak in terms of this process that we're going to get to at the end um, of the podcast uh, and you use the word, the secret word, the importance of 
of, of, of sacred visualization and sacred word and sacred intention. And we're gonna, we're gonna tie that together, but I'm wondering whether or not you came to understand the importance of the sacred word during your early studies as a young Jew. So I had started to read the Kabbalah or at least what I could find in the Kabbalah early on about the tree of the Kabbalistic tree of life. Um, about Adam Cardamon and feet on the earth and head in the stars. And that almost felt like what I was trying to do, right? Was to channel spiritual knowledge through a physical form to benefit, right? It, it almost sounded like with this tree of life that it was explaining these different qualities that you have to develop to be able to get there, right? Whether it was generosity, tzedakah, charity, whatever it was. So, you know, on my own, I, would, I wasn't being taught this in school. I was kind of trying to find whatever I could find. It wasn't at six years old, it was a little bit later, but I was just hungry for knowledge, for spiritual knowledge, because I just came in that way. It was kind of like, I just wanted the answers. And I, you know, I think the divorce and having pain and suffering when you're young and, and experiencing your heart having been broken that way and having you know, had such suffering, you don't understand like why God would even do something because all I did was love God and pray to God and, and wanna help people. As a young child, it doesn't really make any sense. So I started looking for solutions in other places, but you know, I knew from having read that actually in the Torah, um, there was already predictions that they had shown um, that there were words and there were phrases and there were scholars that did this, that actually predicted things thousands of years in the future. That if they looked at this and they look at, but, but of course this is me digging, this is not something I actually got from school. Um, but yes, I mean, I discovered that the sacred word was obviously extremely important and it really got highlighted, however, when I was learning the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali because these were yoga sutras that were thousands of years old. And it was basically taught that when you're in this state of meditation, in this very relaxed, open state, that when you put certain thoughts into the field of consciousness, that consciousness would act upon these thoughts um, in a certain way that vibrations would change and things would happen, whether it be physically in your body or in the world around you. So I, I would say probably the fuller understanding of the sacred word and a lot of these things really developed over time as I kept doing some of my spiritual studies. So let's talk about meditation. Um, how did you ultimately turn to meditation and talk to us about what meditation is for those folks who do not know what it is. Um, I, 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 I often reference uh, Tim Ferris, who talks about different types of meditation, and he argues that there are as many different types of meditation as there are uh, different disciplines of sports, for example. There, you could be a wrestler or a baseball player or a hockey player, and he, he argues that there are that many different types of meditation. So give us some insight into, first, your journey with meditation, what different types of meditation there are, and why you selected your um, flavor of meditation. So... Anyone living on this planet right knows, knows we are under tremendous stress, right? I mean, everybody who just went through the pandemic, any of the sick people out there with Lyme disease or any chronic disease, I mean, stress is just part of daily human life. So, you know, initially for meditation, I think there's scientific benefits. And the first thing that actually pulled me towards meditation is, you know, because, you know, my left brain is scientific. I'm, I'm a scientist at heart. I want proof. I'm not just, you know, some new age person who goes, you know, faith, 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 it's like, mm, I'm religious and I'm spiritual, but I still need some proof, right? I'm not just going to take anything at face value. And I realized that if I was to do this long enough, 
the proof would actually manifest or it wouldn't, right? I could therefore tell people from my own experience what this was. But the initial impetus was, I think, the stress in medical school, um, because the first year in medical school, this was in French, by the way, I went to uh, Switzerland for three months before I started my training in Belgium at Brussels uh, back in 1977. And I had French in uh, from fifth grade onwards. So I, I had had lessons in French, but I never thought I would be fluent in it. Um, it was a stressful experience, basically getting all of your medical training in French. Fortunately, after a while, it, it just came naturally. So initially I was doing it for stress reduction. And the TM program is just, it's one form. Um, it's based on certain Hindu teachings where you use a mantra um, and you relax the mind with this mantra and certain physiological things take place. And it was published by Herbert Benson um, and many of the Harvard scientists back in the 19, late 60s and, and early 70s. And I looked at the science of meditation that you know there was coherence between the two brain, between the left side and the right side of the brain. Um, and it would actually increase intuition and intelligence. Um, cortisol levels would go down, respiratory rate would go down, um, breathing would go down. Physiologically, it was extremely beneficial for the body. They showed that even telomeres, which control your lifespan on this planet, are affected by meditation. If you want to know how to live longer, they've shown that telomerase activity, the enzyme that deals with these telomeres, is affected through meditation. So I was reading all the science and I found it absolutely fascinating. It was probably one of the first steps was the scientific basis. But later, and because it was always with me, I wanted to reestablish that spiritual connection that I had when I was young that was naturally there, but got cut off when this kind of psychic attack happened because of this cut that happened through the divorce when my heart got hurt. So I started to re-enter into meditation. And you're, you're correct, there are many different forms of meditation, but the reason I chose the path that I'm on and the reason I share it with Lyme patients is you know for healing purposes, all healing is gonna take place on four different levels. There's gonna be physical healing, there's gonna be emotional healing, there's gonna be mental healing, and there's gonna be spiritual healing. So any person with a chronic illness, whether you call it chronic Lyme disease, whether you call it chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, fibromyalgia, it doesn't matter. Those four pillars of healing, a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, are always going to apply. So the first is on the physical level, the 16-point MSIDS model that you know I was describing to you it applies to all chronic disease. Why? Because as we were talking about earlier, inflammation, acute inflammation, chronic inflammation underlies all disease, whether it's acute or chronic. And the beauty of the MSIDS model is that it says, well, if you discover multiple sources of inflammation, not just Lyme, not just co-infections like Babesia, Bart, Mycoplasma, Tularemia, Bartonella, um, and viruses, right, and parasites and mold, not just that, but also inflammation from the microbiome of the gut, inflammation from leaky gut and food allergies and mast cells, inflammation from insomnia not sleeping, inflammation from low minerals and zinc, inflammation from autoimmunity and environmental toxins. If you get to all the sources of inflammation and deal with the downstream effects, low hormones, low adrenals, low testosterone, um, autoimmunity, POTS dysautonomia with low blood pressure, liver dysfunction, immune dysfunction, Lyme patients, a lot of them have um, chronic variable immune deficiency with subclass deficiencies. Those are the downstream effects of these infections and toxins driving inflammation, the three eyes. 
infection and inflammation, right, with autoimmune inflammatory response. So the physical pillars that I'm talking about is definitely one aspect of healing that anyone listening should be able to get great benefit. But the next level of emotional mental, what started striking me early on when I was seeing these sick patients is that they had a lot of mental and emotional difficulties, primarily you, the cause. Can I just ask you on that prompt? Are you yes. defining mental and emotional differently or are they one and the same with two, two different words? Um, you know, they, they're kind of, they are in a sense the same, although one is thoughts and the other one is how deeply the thoughts actually affect your feelings, right? I mean, but, but yes, I mean, you could probably say mental, emotional, spiritual if you wanted to combine them. Um, but these patients coming in, one of the things that was obvious from the beginning is, and you know this because you've been in, involved in the Lyme community for a long time, is they would say to you, I've been to 20 to 30 doctors. None of them believe my story. They all tell me it's in my head. I go from doctor to doctor and, and basically they say, you're, you're crazy, right? There's something wrong with you. It's in your head. And I say to them, well, they're correct. It's in your head. You've got Lyme spirochetes in your head. You've got environmental toxins in your head. You know, I would obviously play upon it a little bit. But the fact is, is, is that they had PTSD just from no one believing that they were chronically ill. So not only did they then have PTSD from no one believing their illness, and by the way, their family, it was even worse most of the time because whether they were married or whether it was their family, a lot of times this is like an invisible illness. They would go to these doctors that were supposedly like really good doctors, you know, and the Lyme tests were negative and the family or the spouse would say, it's in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. You're sick. Right. So it, it in, therefore started the cycle of these people thinking, what's wrong with me? Right. There must be something wrong with me. Um, and a lot of these people had emotional trauma, physical trauma, emotional trauma. And about one third of the women that I would always ask the question, have you had sexual abuse? they would share with me privately that yes, about one third of the women had sexual abuse. And this is like one of the most horrible abuses that anyone could have to be violated in that way. I mean, this is like another horrible thing where just men have not learned proper ways of dealing in, in society with hormones and everything else where the morals and ethics of our society have just gone awry, but they've been damaged from this. And what happens is if your emotional system has this thought that there must be something wrong with me, right? What happens to your immune system, you're literally wired to say to yourself, I don't deserve to get better. And that will affect how you fight Lyme disease and these co-infections and get better because there's this deep part inside in your subconscious that says, I'm not worthy. There's something wrong with me. If you're Sicilian Italian, it's more like mia culpa, mia culpa, right? It's, it's guilt and shame, which every Italian who's listening to this, especially Sicilians, knows exactly what I'm talking about. So the point being, if you come in with this, there's a part of emotional healing that must take place. And what's beautiful about meditation specifically is when you learn these focus on meditation. And the three stages of meditation that I learned from my teachers, the first stage, um, and by the way, this was passed down from Buddha Shakyamuni, um, who is the fourth Buddha in a thousand Buddhas in our eon. Buddha Shakyamuni basically taught a three-stage meditation process. And all of these lamas that I met in Belgium, the very venerable Tronga Rinpoche and his eminence, uh, Tai Sita Rinpoche, uh, his holiness, the Karmapa, Jaltsap Rinpoche, um, Jamgub Kantral Rinpoche, um, Power Rinpoche. These were all enlightened masters that I had this amazingly great, you know, fortune to have met. And when I would meet them, 
I was overwhelmed by their wisdom, by their warmth, by their heart, by their humor. These were some of the funniest people, by the way, you know, coming from my Jewish lineage, you could be as spiritual as you want, but if you're not funny, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're going to lose me. Okay. These were some of the funniest people I have ever met. We would laugh our brains out while we were having these conversations together. So, you know, the Buddha taught, in fact, 86,000 different ways, in fact, to become enlightened. But the basic meditations that the Karmakagyu lineage taught was calm abiding. Shamatha Shine were first, you calm your mind to stay in one place. Why is this important? Because Lyme patients come into you all the time with fear that they're never gonna get better. Well, you have to first learn to stay in the present moment because all fear exists living in the future. So the first thing you learn in meditation and calm abiding is don't follow thoughts of the past, don't follow thoughts of the future, and don't follow thoughts of the present. Just stay in the present moment with what's called the seven point posture of Virokana, kind of straight back, eyes open, tongue to the roof of your mouth, so you're connecting the front and back channels, chin just tucked a little bit downward. You can put like your um, right hand resting in your left, in your lap or on your knees, uh, which is called the lion pose. You just basically take this posture so the energies flow. You relax your mind and you do nothing. You don't try and meditate. You just relax and stay in the present moment, but you have to have enough mindfulness and awareness of what's going on. So as thoughts arise, you don't grasp them and follow them, but you don't block thoughts. You don't change thoughts. So the key in this first stage, don't follow thoughts in the past, don't follow thoughts in the future, don't follow thoughts in the present. And especially in the future, that's where fear arises, which is a big problem in Lyme patients who come to see me. Now, once your mind is calm and now your stress hormones are going down, because I look at adrenal function all the time for these Lyme patients, their adrenals are shot, right? Either it's way too high from stress or they're just basically burnt out. The second phase of meditation called Vipassana or insight so now these patients who say, I have fear, I'm never going to get better, right? Or they've had trauma that keeps coming back. In the second stage of meditation, the first stage is kind of like you're now meditating and you've got a, in a sense, a blue sky, right? A nice clear blue sky with clouds. But in Vipassana, insight meditation, the clouds are now taken away and the light comes out because now instead of looking at whatever thoughts are arising, you're not focusing on the content of the thought. I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. I'm fearful. I'm this, I'm that. Whatever's coming up, you look at the nature of the thought. Where does the thought come from? Where does the thought go? Does the thought exist anywhere in space? This I that is experiencing fear, where does the I exist? Does it have a color? Does it have form? Does it exist anywhere in your body? These emotions that are rising like fear, where do they come from? So you're taught in insight meditation when your mind is calm and stable to look directly at the mind. You're basically taking your awareness and resting in your own awareness. You're aware of your own awareness and you're doing this naturally. You're not blocking thoughts. You're not following thoughts. Um, you're just looking at the nature of what's arising and you're asking the self the questions. Like again, what Gendar Rinpoche said with fear, you're running from the monsters and all of a sudden you wake up because you'll notice that in fear, if you really look and someone says, I'm fearful, I'm never gonna get better. You go, well, um, have you ever really looked and found fear? What do you mean? I said, well, look at your mind, see if you can find it. So they're fearful and they look at their mind and it's like, well, 
Where's the fear coming from? Can you find it? Look at your mind. No. Where does fear go? Does it go anywhere? No. Does fear have color or form? Look. No. So fear is empty. It has no color. It has no form. And the way the Tibetans describe the nature of mind is that's the inseparable unity of clarity and emptiness. Now, what does this mean? So the clarity aspect of mind is this bright, aware quality of mind that we all have just listening to this podcast, right? But if you're not, if you're awake, but you're not recognizing the nature of mind, the nature of thoughts, the nature of emotions, which are empty, they have no color, they have no form, but not empty in the sense that they're nothing. They actually have full enlightened potential where all possibilities are present. When you rest in this state naturally, right? And this leads you to the third stage of meditation called Mahamudra meditation, which you read about in the book, Rich. The three stages of Mahamudra meditation, which the Tibetans have taught is perfect for Westerners, right? And Americans is non-conception, non-distraction, and non-meditation. So non-conception meaning you're meditating, but you're not judging the meditation. You don't say to yourself, oh, that was a good thought. That was a bad thought. I'm meditating well. Oh my God, what a horrible meditation. My mind is all over the place. You don't conceptualize. You just rest without judgment. Non-distraction because you have to keep the mind in one place to keep looking at mind, right? So you can see the nature of what is arising. And then non-meditation because the best meditation is non-meditation. It's done without effort. You just open relaxation and letting go, keeping your awareness on your own awareness looking at what naturally arises. So when you look at whatever thought arises and you say, well, where did that thought of fear arise? And you don't see it and you find, gee, that thought has no color, it has no form. The minute you see it, relax your mind in the open, clear, empty essence of mind, which has naturally this enlightened potential and great power. And what I'm teaching kids to do, adults to do, anyone who reads Starseed Revolution, what I'm giving them is I'm passing on these teachings from Kempo Gangsha Rinpoche that were given 100 years ago when people did not have time to go into three-year meditation retreat to recognize the nature of mind and empower the people. Because these kids with climate grief that were coming in, they think they're powerless. What can we do to possibly change world leaders? We can't tell them what to do with the climate. And yet I provide in Starseed Revolution solutions for the climate that are not always being discussed in the mainstream media, right? How to geoengineer the Arctic and cool down the glaciers like the Thwaites Glacier. That basically the geoengineering solution is saying from the American Geophysicist Union that that big old glacier is gonna collapse in the next three to five years, fall into the ocean and raise global sea levels by over two feet, which is gonna put New York, Miami, coastal cities in the US, in Europe, right? Amsterdam, Venice, in China, all over the world underwater, right? So we need to geoengineer the Arctic. There are solutions from Harvard, from Stanford with sulfates at 60,000 feet to block the ultraviolet rays, cloud brightening with salt water to block the UV light getting in, solar reflectors, 1 million mile of solar reflectors in the ocean to push that energy back into space. So we cool down the planet, we electrify everything with wind, water, solar. It comes from Stanford University. They have shown in the United States, if you put 100 by 100 square foot miles of solar reflectors in the Arizona, California, Nevada desert, it would give us enough solar power 
to power the entire United States that we would not to be to be on fossil fuels. We can do this right now to get off fossil fuels, but also the biodiversity of the planet is going down. We're in the early stages of the sixth extinction. According to the UN, we're losing all of these species every day and every year. If we lose pollinators, the food supply is at risk. So we need to protect 50% of the lands and the oceans that are now in the world to be able to protect it. And the food supply is gonna be affected. We need to adopt what's called regenerative agriculture. These four pillars of environmental healing that I just discussed with you are in Starseed Revolution. They give hope to people, but not false hope, Hope that if we did this right now, we would be able to solve the problem with the climate and keep our, our raise in temperature below 1.5 degrees, give hope to these kids with climate grief, and by meditating with the solutions in the book, find a way with what I call the 1% global climate solution to have enough people in this meditative state, and this is based on quantum physical principles, if enough people meditate with the same visualization, this is what you were asking earlier about the sacred word and, and the rest. There's words and visualizations that I describe in Starseed Revolution that if enough people enter this open, relaxed, meditative state with the motivation, may I benefit sentient beings limitlessly through time and space and relieve their suffering and help this planet right now. May I be a great protector on this earth and everyone enters with this motivation of what the Tibetans call bodhicitta, working for the benefit of others to reach enlightenment, to relieve their suffering, bring them happiness and joy. If we all do this with the specific meditation, people are gonna be empowered. And the theory that I have based on what I've looked at in science, based in quantum physical principles, if I could get 1% of the global population to do this meditation, what would happen is we'd be working it from the inside out to make change. Because right now people are thinking we can't tell global leaders what to do. They're not making the change. But what if we provide four simple solutions that we could do in the United States right now, get the Build Back Better Act to be produced right now through Congress, get it passed so we have resiliency in this country, show the world what is possible with these four solutions that I just discussed and get people worldwide to do this meditation not only to help with climate grief and to help with all the stress and depression and everything we've just gone through with COVID, but to empower us with spiritual principles so that we're connected with a deeper source that we can try and change actually physical reality by working it from the inside out. So I'm working this from multiple sides, from the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual to try and provide solutions for this present climate crisis that we are presently experiencing. So Dr. Horowitz, I, there's a lot of crossover here between what you've learned in the Lyme and tick-borne illness community with what you're now doing in the climate science world, right? And you mentioned earlier on with Rich that empowerment is important. And in your book, you talk about you need to empower people so they know they can move things in a positive direction regarding climate science. But I think empowerment is a really important term and concept in the tick-borne illness community. So talk to us about the overlaps of the concepts you've learned in the Lyme community that you're now applying to climate change and how all of these skills you've built up are now gonna help you save the world as a whole and not just the Lyme disease community. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So the reason empowerment, first of all, is so important is, and you know this because you've been in the Lyme community for a long time, a lot of these people come in without hope. They really feel like 
you know, especially they come to me and they say, you're the doctor of last resort. And it's like, oh, thanks. Don't put too much pressure on me that I'm the last guy that, you know, ultimately has to get you better. But ultimately, I'm willing to take on that responsibility because I know I can do it. I've done it. And I share every secret I have every time I find something, right, that benefits the Lyme community. I do a training for doctors every year. The next one we're doing, I think, will be at the end of May, where I treat, I train healthcare providers in the MSIDS model, updates on Dapsone, updates on disulfiram. We've got azlocillin and hygromycin A coming down the pike, right? I teach them everything new that just came out in the last year. These slides, by the way, just keep getting bigger and bigger every year because I keep, you know, the scientific literature just keeps growing. But we empower the doctors. We give them knowledge to say, it's biofilms, it's persisters that are driving most of the inflammation. The co-infections, extremely important. Those environmental toxins with mercury, lead, mold, don't ignore them. Detox, detox, detox. Please guys, don't forget this part of it. Look at the microbiome, check them from mast cell. We empower doctors and we empower patients with knowledge, right? Because with knowledge of understanding the science of Lyme and what's really happening, people can go forward and go, oh, I can have hope. It's not false hope. There really is hope. There are answers. And it's the same thing in the climate community. There, you know, the, the new IPCC report is coming out on February 28th, one day before the release of my new book on March 1st, Starseed Revolution. And what's unbelievable about the timing on this, and I, you know, we had, you heard me talk a couple of nights ago on this, on page 11 of the book, this book was written in 2018, the first draft. Page 11. When you read page 11 and it says, President Kennedy met with these star seeds, right? With these people and talked about how can we prevent wars? What is now happening on the planet, right? Russia and everything going on right now. You read further in the book, right? There's a lot of synchronicities that you're gonna read about that happened in this book, right? About when I wrote the book, there was not supposed to be global sea level rise. I was estimating in the year 2037 where I think things were going to be going. Well, the Washington Post just declared about a month and a half to two months ago, we have built in at least a one to two foot sea level rise in the next couple of decades, which when I wrote the book, by the way, was not supposed to be happening. So I'm empowering people by saying, I'm giving you four pillars of the environment, geoengineering, protecting the earth 50% and regenerating it, electrifying everything with wind, water, and solar, regenerative agriculture. If these four pillars were instituted now, we would save the United States of America. And if we can get our country to do it, and the call to action I'm putting out for the Lyme community is, as you know, the Lyme community has not always worked together, right, in a harmonious fashion over time. Every Lyme community, every um, Lyme group that's out there, I think some of them want to be the, you know, the one that finds the cure, or the one that wants to do X, Y, and Z. But it's time for us to come together in a global purpose, and not just the global purpose, because climate is pushing forward tick-borne diseases. This is absolutely clear that as the climate heats up, the reproductive rates of insects are going up, and unfortunately, it's ticks, mosquitoes, and fleas that are going up. It's not the good insects. The good insects are going down. The bad insects are going up. We have a chance of the, as the Lyme community right now to come together and to say, vector-borne diseases are going up. We're going to come together. We're going to work on our senators and congressmen. We're going to work at the local, state, and national level to get these four pillars of environmental science instituted to help our country. We're going to provide 
a way for the United States to lead the way for the rest of the world. And by doing this, the karmic consequences of us as a Lyme community saying, we're not just gonna help ourselves because Dr. Horowitz and others are finding solutions for Lyme and tick-borne, but we're gonna create such positive good karma by trying to benefit the world at large that the way this is gonna come back to us because ultimately it's the law of action and reaction. Whatever you do is ultimately gonna come back to you. We as a Lyme community can be motivated to say, we will be the change. We will bring forth the science of the climate. We will bring forth the science for Lyme and tick-borne disorders, for even chronic disease, right? With the 16 point model, we have an opportunity here now to take the Lyme community and bring them together and create a community, not just in the US, but globally. And let's get started with this because truthfully, we've only got a couple of years before that Thwaites Glacier falls into the ocean and there's nothing that's gonna stop then the glacial melt because right now that ice shelf that is holding the Thwaites Glacier in place, once that falls into the ocean and the ocean which is heating up melts the glacier, what's gonna happen is that ice shelf that's no longer there, the glacial melt, it's gonna start to go basically a lot faster because we're now having methane spikes and methane is heating the planet 30 to 80 times more efficiently and it's just gonna get faster and faster with feedback loops. So we've got a period of time in the next three to five years, but we have to, I need, I need the, the armies to get together. This is a call to action for the Lyme community that we can do something on a global level that has never been done. And I'm providing the pillars of the science in Starseed Revolution while giving you some humor, giving you some meditation techniques that teach you how to work with the mind and hopefully provide a blueprint that will take us forward in a way that we can do things that I think no one would have ever imagined we could have accomplished. So Dr. Arowitz, I do wanna dig in on Starseed Revolution, but I, I have a couple of questions that I wanna explore with you before we, we get into the book and the specifics of the book. So Mary Beth Pfeiffer in her book, which Matt and I read together during the early parts of our journey, talked about, the, um, about Lyme disease as the first uh, global pandemic caused by climate change. Um, and uh, I think we need to explore that a little bit more so that we can we can build that out for folks in this community, because yes, uh, you know the the breeding period or the breeding window for for the uh, for the ticks is expanding, so we'll have more ticks and more likely we will come in contact with ticks. That's certainly true, but we also have to focus on how the bacteria and the germs generally that are being spit into us are being are behaving differently as a result of climate change and how they become more viral. So can you focus on that piece of it? Because I, I agree that the, that the exposure is more likely because of the extended breeding uh, window and because the, the climate is more, um, is more habitable for ticks. But let's talk about the, the, the germs that are making us sick and how climate change is affecting that as well. Great, so that's a great question, Rich. So, so first of all, the first thing that people need to know with the exact relationship of the climate and tick-borne is that as the CDC came out the year before and said, we have about a half a million new cases of Lyme in the US and you go back 10 years and oh, it's 30,000 cases, but you know, let's multiply them by 10. It's like, all right, maybe, I mean, now it's very clear that this is just expanding year after year after year after year. And the reason being that these ticks have no way to regulate their internal temperature. Their reproductive rates are directly related to the external temperature. So as the external temperature rises, the ticks internal temperature rise, rising the reproductive rates, more ticks going a lot faster. 
Now, the pathogenicity of the ticks, that's a very interesting question and what they've shown is happening. First of all, if you go back about 20 years, you'll notice that we've discovered about eight or 10 new tick-borne species just in the last 20 years, right? Rickettsia parkeri, right? This new rickettsiosis. The Gulf Coast tick, which should just be in California, was just found in New York City. It decided to take a trip from the Gulf Coast all the way to New York. And this parkeri, rickettsia parkeri, looks like rotten mountain spotted fever, smells like rotten mountain spotted fever. The difference is, you're still going to get low white cell counts, low platelet counts, elevated liver functions, um, and fatigue and aches. But you can die from Rocky Mountain spotted fever without a tetracycline within the first seven days. Now, when we've got these wildfires from the climate that are destroying forests, one of the things that's been shown is if the ticks before a wildfire in the forest were 100% Ixodes species, after the fire, they're now roughly 55% Ixodes 45% dermatocenter species that carry rickettsial infections. Now, not that Lyme can't kill you, it can from Lyme carditis, but rickettsial species specifically, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, right? Typhus, Q fever, they will kill you and they have killed you. I mean, there are people that have lost arms and legs from Rocky Mountain spotted fever, young kids that have died from it. So the fact that as the climate changes and even the tick population is changing, we're noticing that there are new Borrelia sensulatu species that keep being discovered every couple of years, right? So what Borrelia sensulatu means is that there's a family of Borrelia that are known to make you sick. So if you go back 20 years, it might've just been Borrelia burgdorferi sensu strictu, right? That was Lyme disease in the US. And in Europe, it would have been Borrelia abzelli, which is the Borrelia that causes acrodermatitis, chronic amitrophicans, which is the violaceous skin rash they get on their hands and their feet from that species of Borrelia in Europe, or Borrelia garinii, which causes neuroborreliosis in the European species. And by the way, these species are now in the US because the birds are taking the ticks, which are expanding, taking them over from countries to states, and we're now seeing them spread. But what's happened is, is that they keep discovering these new Borrelia species. So for example, in California, there's now Borrelia lanei, right? That was named after Bob Lane, who was environmentalist in California um, and other Borrelia species. So Borrelia maoni, named after the Mayo Clinic showed up, right, a couple of years ago. That one has like a little bit of a spotted rash, different from the usual EM rash that we might associate with Lyme. So what's happening with the climate is it keeps getting warmer is not only the tick species starting to expand and change, but the number of Borrelia species are expanding. And with Bartonella, years ago, there were 16, 18 species, we're over 36 species and subspecies now. And in the biofilms, we now know that as the relapsing fever Borrelia, right, are now starting to get more. Years ago, we only talked about soft tick relapsing fever, right? Um, so Borrelia hermsi, right? They used to get in Arizona in certain camps. Well, now we have heart tick relapsing fever, Borrelia miyamotoi. Well, if you go back 10, 15 years, nobody even heard about Borrelia miyamotoi. It's a new tick-borne relapsing fever species. Well, how is it changing the pathogenicity of Lyme, which is your question? Well, we now know that these spirochetes are in biofilms. And if you get relapsing fever Borrelia under the biofilms with Borrelia burgdorferi, these guys are having spirochetal sex. They're basically interchanging their DNA and the way that these relapsing fever species avoid your immune system is they keep changing the outer surface protein coats so that your immune system can't recognize it. So now what's happening, you're getting genetically different species that are even showing up in your own body, 
in the biofilms. And th this is Garth Gerlich, by the way, uh, you know, who talked about this. And there's many doctors who've talked about this kind of phenomenon. So we're seeing years ago it was mostly Babesia microti. Then all of a sudden, Babesia duncani, while one came on the species. Now there's more Babesia species. So all the species of these tick-borne diseases just keep getting more numerous. They keep getting more pathogenic. You didn't hear about Powassan virus probably 20 years ago. And now, I don't know if the Lyme community knows this, but people who live in Lyme endemic areas, like on the Northeast or in the Midwest, like Michigan and those places, 10 to 16% of the people living in Lyme endemic areas now have antibodies against the Powassan virus. Now, one out of 150 people can die just like with West Nile, which is a flavor virus. But why should we be specifically concerned that 10 to 16% of Lyme patients have Powassan antibodies? Flavor viruses are known to persist in the body. West Nile and Zika are flavor viruses. So it's possible, and no one knows the answer to this, but you get a tick bite and within 15 minutes of a tick bite, you can get the Powassan virus that gets into your skin, right? And it's expanding and expanding over time and it can kill you. Apart from now maybe getting a flavor virus that can persist on top of your Lyme, on top of your Babesia, on top of your Bartonella. So it's like more and more viruses and infections of different species and subspecies that are genetically changing with ticks that are changing. This is all happening as the climate change keeps expanding. I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare as far as what's going on right now. And if that weren't bad enough, let's talk about how climate change and the rise in temperature is going to impact our microbiome and the impact that that's gonna have on our immune system, putting aside the injection of tick diseases and um, how chronic illness is going to increase simply as a result of our immune system being overwhelmed by the changing characteristics of our microbiome separate from the challenges that are going to be, we're going to face with all the changes in tick diseases. So what's gonna happen, and again, it's a, it's a great question. So what's happening with the microbiome, the science on the microbiome of the gut during the last couple of decades have shown that most of the chronic diseases that we're now seeing, especially autoimmunity, they've talked about this a lot with rheumatoid arthritis, MS, um, uh, I'm trying to think what other ones, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, they've shown that there are species in the microbiome like Prevotella species, Clostridium species, these different species that are now associated with autoimmunity. Doctors from NYU, Stanford, a lot of the literature is now showing this, that the microbiome is really, really important. So what's happening is as the climate starts expanding and nutrition, by the way, for people that don't know it, Whatever you think you're getting in your diet now, let's say you're eating not what I'll call the sad diet, the standard American diet, right? Which is really not eating healthy. It's a lot of white bread and white flour and, and simple carbohydrates, which is what's driving metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. And a lot of the problems we're seeing with cardiovascular disease, strokes, heart attacks. Just if you, even if you think you're eating a healthy diet with fruits and vegetables, the soil, because we have not done regenerative agriculture, They've now shown that the actual nutrition that's getting into your body is like a third of what it was from 50 years ago. Now, why is that important? Because you're getting hundreds to thousands of environmental toxins that are all carcinogenic. They've all been linked up, or at least most of them have been linked up to autoimmunity. We know that Lyme disease with Borrelia burgdorferi drives autoimmunity. You get anti-nuclear antibodies, you get rheumatoid factors, you get antithyroglobulin, antithyroid peroxidase, um, anti-GAD antibodies, and th there's a whole host of antibodies, right, against the nerves in the body, anti-gangliocide. 
So Lyme, Borrelia causes autoimmunity. Now you combine that with environmental toxins that causes autoimmunity. And if you don't have the right nutritional, you know, zinc, copper, you need copper for superoxide dismutase to deal with free radicals. You need magnesium to detoxify all these chemicals. You need zinc for inflammation, right? If you're not getting the right amino acids and fatty acids in nutrition, your immune system is not gonna be able to handle and detoxify what's getting into your body. So the microbiome is gonna change because we're not eating the right diet. You're getting all these toxins in and that is impacting basically how now you're gonna be able to deal with Lyme and all these toxins getting in. So it's, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy that one is just building upon the other and people aren't realizing that because we have not adopted proper agricultural practices and we need to get to regenerative agriculture to really help us to sustain the food supply, that will help to get the proper nutrition in our body that helps our immune system to fight the Lyme and detox all these chemicals that are getting in. Dr. Harris, I wonder if there's an overlap here as well, though, with climate and Lyme, right? Because you probably know Dr. Kim Lewis put something out recently within the last six months or so or the last year that he identified a particular imbalance of microbes in our microbiome linked to chronic Lyme disease and a potential way to diagnose chronic Lyme. And I have up the article and he talks about there's an abundance of a type of bacteria called a Blauchia, which I'm probably mispronouncing, and a suppression of a type of bacteria called bacterio bacterioids, which I'm probably mispronouncing as well. And those are the indicators of chronic Lyme consistently in every study he performed. So how do you think things like that are tied to chronic Lyme disease but also what impact is the environment and the climate having on our microbiome to possibly make us more susceptible to an imbalanced set of microbes, making us more susceptible to chronic illness? So the, the thing that I've seen about, about blood and clostridium species and the rest um, and bacteroides is that I have not seen that it's so specific for Lyme that this is a, you know, a marker that if you have this exact imbalance, because unfortunately with the microbiome studies that have been done and they, they showed this through Ubiome and a lot of these different uh, like comprehensive digestive stool analysis from Genova, depending on where you take the stool specimen, um, you're going to get completely different microbiome results. So what I have read on Blautia and Clostridium and, and Firmicutes and, and all of these different species, Prevotella species, is that there's overlaps with a lot of the different diseases that are out there, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lyme disease, autoimmunity, MS, et cetera. I don't know that there's a specific signature yet um, about this. Now, one of the things that he did discover that, you know, he's talking about hygromycin A being one of these picular compounds that he found from soil-based bacteria that does not affect the microbiome of the gut. And he's thinking that this is going to be a potential cure for Lyme and it's not gonna throw off the microbiome. I should tell you that absolutely it may have potential and I hope for the Lyme community it does. But ultimately, I don't know that it's gonna make that much of a difference because remember with, if you're a researcher and all you're doing is talking about Lyme disease, you're missing the big picture. The big picture of why people are getting sick from Lyme is not just Lyme. They're getting sick because of Babesia, because of Bartonella, because of environmental toxins, because of POTS, because of mitochondrial dysfunction, sleep disorders, nutritional deficiencies. You know, that's the 16-point model. So you're, you can't focus as a researcher who has not seen patients in the clinic. And he's a brilliant researcher, Kim Lewis, right? God bless. But I'm sorry, you can't just focus on this one thing and say that this is gonna be the solution for Lyme patients, because it's not. The solution is the 16-point MSIDS model, because so far, having put forth this model, and read, I read probably at least an hour of scientific literature every morning, right, apart from reading the climate and everything else that's going on politically, um, you've gotta look at 
kind of the global picture of everything that's happening. So even if you were to found a solution for Lyme, Bartonella is a big enough problem that we're dealing with that we still have to deal with solutions for that and for Babesia, right? We still need solutions for those organisms. So, you know, the environment is affecting it and it's the gut specifically. They've shown, by the way, that if you change, you put more fiber in your gut, right? You do more prebiotics with good fiber, with fructolytocosaccharides. You start eating more fiber from fruits and vegetables and, and healthy grains. You start changing the microbiome of your gut to a healthier microbiome. And so that alone is going to help your body. But, you know, we're not exactly still at the point. I mean, we've done, of course, microbiome transplant for people with C. diff. They've shown that if you have diabetes and metabolic syndrome, you can take somebody that has really good insulin, you know, you know, resistance and you put their bacteria into someone with diabetes and all of a sudden their insulin resistance is much better. We have early studies that have been done on this, but I don't think we're yet at the point that we're going to be able to manipulate the microbiome alone, right? To be able to do it without kind of taking into effect all these other factors that are on the 16-point MSIDS map. So again, as the environment changes and we have less nutrition from the soil, which is not being regulated and more toxins are getting in, it will definitely affect the microbiome and will affect the way you detox. But I think we have to just keep in mind all of these other factors to you know, not ignore them because it's a much bigger picture that's making people sick. Dr. Horowitz, your book is a call to action and you began to touch on that a couple of minutes ago. And one of the things that we always do here at Take Bootcamp is we like to bring back the call to action to what's in it for the particular patient, right? You talked about the environmental loops and now we're talking about the personal or individual health loops now that, that are now sort of crossing over. And um, I think it's important for us to talk about why each Lyme patient should be called to action, uh, why each, each Lyme patient who is participating in a group setting or a not-for-profit setting or some sort of a um, um, uh, support organization should be demanding that their leadership put aside their differences and work together towards achieving this goal that we need to achieve. But we need to, we need to make sure that we bring this home to each individual patient and talk about how it is more likely that they are going to get reinfected. It is more likely that they're not going to be able to manage their disease if this climate continues to increase and their, and their immune system does not function as well. And I'm sure there are many other factors that we, we have to focus on. And I'd like you to, like, before we now start talking specifically about how you brought these, these um, um, tools and ideas to this, uh, this interesting sci-fi, funny climate change um, uh, novel, um, let, let's talk about what's in it for each individual person and why sh they should be called to action and why they should be demanding that the leadership of their organizations put aside their differences and work towards this common goal. So it's a, it's a great question. So first of all, I, I'm going to go back to the motivational uh, talk I talked about early on in this podcast, which is you have to think about doing for others as if you would want to do for yourselves, right? There are people yet that have not had Lyme and tick-borne illness, who have not gone through the suffering that this Lyme community has gone through, that don't yet understand the amount of mold toxins that are showing up in Lyme patients or heavy metals, basically because of all the environmental toxins that are just being dumped every day into the environment. So the first most important thing for me is, is to do onto others, right? You have to first consider that, first of all, by helping others not get Lyme disease, and, and not get all of these toxins in your body, 
um, you're going to be doing a great benefit for the world. And the law of karma states, law of action and reaction states, whatever you do is going to come back to you. Now, I know this is probably a global spiritual idea. You might not think about it in terms of, well, how does this really affect me? But I can tell you from my own spiritual journey, um, as I said to you early on, even though I have my uh, left brain very science-based and my right brain intuition, where I you know, kind of bring in spirituality and connect as best I can, the fact is, is, is that you have to look at both sides of the equation. And tick-borne disorders are just going to get worse. So if you think you're going to ignore the climate and just say, well, I'm just going to heal myself. I'm going to take double-dose dapsone combination therapy that Dr. Horowitz published in the literature and work with his last book, How Can I Get Better with My Doctor and Solve Lyme? And I don't need to worry about all this other stuff. The fact is, is if you don't start taking a stance for the climate, for your children and their children's children, and even for you that you're going to get reinfected, because the tick-borne disorders, as we talked about, are getting worse as the climate is heating up. So let's now take the scenario, you got over Lyme disease, and this has happened to me, by the way, in my practice. And I tell people, I'll strangle you if it took me years to get you better. And I struggle to do this. If God forbid you get bitten by a tick again and come in here sick, I'll put my hands around your neck and go, oh my God, are you kidding me? And I've seen it happen, by the way. I don't actually, of course, put my hands around their neck. I go, oh God, really? You know, we, we all, we commiserate together. But the point is you are at risk for getting more tick-borne diseases. The toxins are getting in. You still have the nutritional problems because we have not adopted regenerative agriculture. And let's face it, there's risks. And I don't think you realize this for the pharmaceutical supply. Everybody expects that these new treatments right, that are coming out of Stanford University, right, azlocillin, hygromycin A, doxycycline, okay, everybody assumes pharmaceuticals are going to be around forever. Let me ask you a question. Did you see supply chain issues during the last two years during a pandemic? Of course you did. Let me now ask you the question that let's say the Thwaites Glacier dumps into the ocean. We've now got over a two-foot sea level rise. We're dealing with coastal flooding, we're dealing with grids going down. We're dealing with supply chain problems. What do you think is going to happen to the pharmaceutical companies when we have to start shipping standard medications? There's going to be a problem, by the way, when the electrical grids go down in the hospitals and they're all on backup generators and you've lost power in your house and you no longer have a refrigeration for your rosethin that you're keeping in your fridge. People don't realize that the pharmaceuticals, the companies that are making them, the global supply chain, this is all an ecosystem where everything depends on everything else. And without getting too science fiction dystopian on you, the fact is, is, is that it is going to happen, folks. If you don't wake up and smell the science of what's happening right now and come to action, right? And this is a way for the Lyme community to say, I don't want other people to suffer the way I have, right? You can help prevent this from happening, including some of the other global disasters that are just around the corner that are imminent. So I would say the first thing for the Lyme community to realize is you personally, your risk of getting more tick-borne diseases and toxins and poor nutrition, it's just going to get worse if you personally don't help in this global chain to do something about the climate. I would say that's number one. But the second part really is think about you're only on this earth. Life is impermanent. You've only got so much time in this earth to do good. And when you leave this planet, the only thing you're going to bring with you at the time when you pass is the amount of love you have, 
the amount of wisdom you have and whatever karma you have done is going to follow you forth. You have to start thinking in terms of you as a soul of what can I do? My teachers would say that some of the reasons for sickness, right? This is not new agey of blaming people for why they get sick, but their perspective is that we are beings who incarnate from lifetime to lifetime and that we carry a burden of karma, a boatload of karma with us. And then we have lessons that we need to learn from lifetime to lifetime. And I'm not one to say why someone gets sick and someone else doesn't, but I've spoken to people way wiser than I am, right? I mean, I'm nowhere near my spiritual teacher's level of you know, evolution, but they basically said to me that these are karmic burdens that people are bringing with them with illness. Why would you take a chance knowing that maybe this played a role right, of the way everything has action and reaction, why would you take a chance? Every being wants to be happy. Every being wants not to suffer. Why would you not create causes and conditions for yourself to bring happiness and joy for yourself and for others in the future by doing something of a global magnitude that will not only help you, but help every generation and future generations for humanity, because we're in the early stages of a sixth extinction. You know, if you have kids and grandkids and you just say, I just want to get over Lyme disease, you're not thinking about what's going to happen to your loved ones, because as biodiversity goes down and we lose all these species and pollinators, the food supply is going to be at risk, right? We need food. We need nutrition to be able to deal with chronic illness. All of this is linking up. There is no way to separate one from the other. And for me, this is an action. So that whatever karma, whatever happened that everybody was sick in this community, whatever differences we had, this is a call to action in a way that we can do something great and get at least our government, get us in the United States to do wind, water, solar, and electrify and do regenerative agriculture, right? And geoengineer the Arctic, right? Do all the solutions that we're talking about today by preserving and restoring 50% of our ecosystems. These four solutions, these environmental pillars discussed in, in Starseed Revolution, we can work with our senators and congressmen at the local, at the state level and create resiliency. It's gonna protect us, our lives, our loved ones. If we don't do it now, I hope no one ever has to look back at this podcast five, 10 years from now and say, oh my God, Dr. H was talking about this and we didn't do it. This is a call to action. Everyone should know me well enough by now. I don't waste my time on things that don't, aren't really important. This is the most important thing you are going to do probably in your life and for your generations, your kids and their grandkids to come. And the benefit of what you do for others, it's gonna come back to you a thousand fold because of the billions of people whose lives are gonna be affected. If you think of it in the terms of, I'm gonna make a difference of billions of people's lives to protect them, to relieve their suffering, that is gonna come back to you right? From that perspective, karmically, what a wonderful thing you're going to do for your own soul evolution for all the people on this planet. So now let's, let's finally get to Starseed Revolution, The Awakening and the five part brilliant book that you had written that where you teach all these concepts. Um, let's talk about um, why you divided the book into the five parts. Who are the main characters? What inspired you to use the characters that you did to teach these concepts? And, uh, and then we'll get to uh, how we can get this book into people's hands. So first of all, when I started writing this book, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to write. In fact, I have to tell you, it's a, it was a very scary experience because 
you know, I got kind of the marching orders from my spiritual family, which really does not normally happen to me, right? I don't usually hear things that clearly like, this is what you need to do to make a difference in the world at the best possible way. Okay, so when I sat down, I didn't know one chapter to the next what I was going to write. So when I divided it up into five chapters, the first thing that came to me, and I, I don't want to give too much away about the Battle of Woodstock and kind of, you know, what happens, because as you know, it, it's a pretty funny first yeah, you've read it, Rich. I mean, it, you can comment funny. on so it. Let, let's let's say let's pause there for a second about the importance of humor, right? You okay. you were you were spiritually charged with writing a book that included humor, and I and I shared with you offline that I've only laughed aloud three times while reading a book. Two of them were were reading your book, right? Uh, and I'm not going to specify why I found one thing so funny because it, it's a little off color. Uh, but um, it is important to have humor so that people can have the energy they need to learn, right? So they can have endurance. So talk about how uh, your charge to, uh, to write a book that had humor was important to giving the energy necessary for people to, um, to people learn what they needed to learn in order to be able to save their planet. You know, when you, when you really understand the science of what's happening right now with the climate, it's it's a little overwhelming, quite truthfully. Um, it could make you very depressed, very anxious. The New York Times did a piece about two weeks ago that 65% of the kids coming into psychologist's office now have climate grief, right? Exactly what I was hearing four years ago. The WHO has said that there's over 300 million people in the world that are severely depressed. I mean, we've got basically a mental health pandemic and COVID-19 did not make it any better because you know all of these tens and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people with long hauler, They've got mental illness. They are depressed. They are anxious. So if you're going to deal with a subject that is so serious, like the climate, you better do it in a way that people can hear it. And one of the things I would say are American values that I think we maybe have, I, I would say the English, the British probably, you know, also have it. We, we derive from the British, but we have a sense of humor in this country, right? You look at Robin Williams and Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, whoever it is, the great comedians, right? That are, we have humor in the United States and humor is really a great tool because when you're dealing with such a serious subject, I wanna teach people the truth. I don't want them to put their heads in the sand and say, no, no, this is not really happening because that's not gonna work, right? That's gonna hurt us. But I've gotta do it in a way that I'm gonna make you laugh but I'm also gonna tell you there really are solutions. I'm not giving you false hope. I'm not giving you false solutions. I'm actually giving you hard scientific solutions that if instituted, give you hope and will actually change the present situation. So it just felt to me like humor needed to be included right in this type of a book, because if I just wrote a straight climate book and did what a lot of people did, it's actually kind of gloom and doom. Like, oh my God, this, it's like, that's just not gonna work. Other people can do that, right? I needed to do something that was more in my, you know, Jewish lineage of, of how I came about. And, you know, the way the characters in the book got developed. And again, none of this was premeditated. This just came out. People reading this should know this is like my alien autobiography. When, when, when you read, and I know you asked this question, Rich, when you read about grandmother Helen of Antwar, the great matriarch, right, of Arcturus, that is my grandma Helen. So I don't need to give you too many examples, but I will give you two. The, the place that I took out of Arcturus, so you should just know that in this book, you know, I'm born in the year 2037 and I'm a half alien, half genetically manipulated human with Jewish DNA, right? Who's come to save the planet. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. 
And, and his grandpa, name is Prince Ian, His name right? is Prince Ian of Arcturus, who is the royal PIA. <laughs> and there's a reason, by the way, of course, why I chose that. Yes, he, I am a royal PIA, as you will all discover. So, so when I would grow up with my grandmother, one of the things that was absolutely horrific that stuck with me in my childhood is I would be in New York City walking along the street with my grandmother. She'd be holding my hand when I was like seven or eight years old. And there might have been like a really, you know, obese person who was six feet in front of us. And my grandmother typically had no filter between her brain and her mouth. So spontaneously, what would come out of my mouth, my grandmother would be things like, oh, my God, would you look at the ass on that one? It's like, oh, grandma, <laughs> shut up, stop. You know, or we'd be in a delicatessen, right? And the, the, the guy behind the deli counter would say, ma'am, would you like to taste some turkey? And he'd give her a piece of turkey. And my grandmother would taste it and spit it on the floor and go, this is the driest turkey I've ever had, Tui. It's like, grandma, please stop it. It's like she would embarrass me on a regular basis. So you realize when you're writing a book like this, there are qualities of your family, right? That naturally just kind of make it into the storyline. And my mother's name was Dawn. Right. So Queen Dawn of Arcturus, who is, you know, again, one of the main characters of the book, you know, relates to my mother. So what I did is, you know, this just naturally arose when I was writing spontaneously because I really had no idea from chapter to chapter what I was writing. You know, some of your old family peccadillos just kind of make it in there. And then I'd start laughing as I was realizing what was coming through as I was writing this. Um, but truthfully, from chapter to chapter, it just kind of evolved. And the really fascinating part about creating a book like this, right? It felt like when the book was done, it almost felt like an, um, like if you have a statue, maybe somebody who's a sculptor will tell you the sculpture was already done. It's like it already was there and all the sculptor had to do was kind of, un, you know, show everyone what was already there. And it almost felt like this book had already been written before I actually downloaded this 450 page manuscript in meditation. Um, but honestly, from chapter to chapter, I had no idea. And I would sit sometimes for an hour or two waiting for something to come. And then all of a sudden, it was like an inspiration. And, you know, having spoken to writers, and I realized that because I'd never tried doing this before, um, you're not actually writing it, you kind of get out of the way. And you let this inspiration just come through and the writing just happens and you just get out of the way. And, and I've spoken to other writers who say that's exactly the process sometimes when you're doing this. So, you know, that's kind of how it evolved. You know, I, I really loved, uh, I loved the character that you built around your grandmother because, you know, it's, it's change is painful, right? It's, it's painful for us to realize that we we're wrong. It's painful for us to realize that, that we need to change. And we really need someone who loves us up and loves us to death, who can say anything to us to say the things that your grandmother's character had to say in this book, like, you morons, how could you do this? You know, and she was so beautifully written. And, and, and I'll have to confess that perhaps one of the reasons why I laughed aloud when I read um, her speech to uh, humanity um, and she told us how not only dumb, but ugly we were, uh, that, um, that um, you know, it reminded me of some of the, you know, most important changes I made in my life as a result of people who love me to death 
telling me that I was wrong and telling me I had to change. And we need more, we need more people like that, especially in a politically polarized world where uh, we can't take any criticism and we're fragile and it makes it difficult to, to make the kinds of large scale changes that you're calling for in this book. And I, I, I just wanna thank you for that particular character and, and, that, and that part of your call to action. So now just share again, we just wanna tease this because we certainly don't want anyone to, um, to uh, miss the opportunity to, to be blessed by buying and reading this entire book. Uh, but talk to us about, talk to us about how you built these, this group of characters together um, where they made the observations about the mistakes we've made in the past, why we may have made these mistakes, and how we move forward towards overcoming the challenges that will be existential if we don't make the changes that need to be made. You know, so obviously the motivation in writing the book was to benefit people because this is, again, the basic motivation that my teachers taught me a long time ago, which is just think of how you can benefit others. How can you relieve their suffering? right? Love is wanting other people to be happy. Compassion is wanting other people to be free from suffering. So if you, whatever you're, whatever you do, right, whatever your job is, whatever your life profession is, if you take that motivation into it, it doesn't matter what it is, but you use that motivation, you are going to have a greater impact. So when I was writing the book, I always kept that motivation in hand thinking, you know, I don't want to make this a dystopian science fiction novel where, you know, everything goes south and this happens. I made sure when I was writing it because I did not want to put that kind of energy in there. Although I discuss, as you know, the first great climate change that happens at 1.5, the second great climate change that happens at 1.6. And of course, to my dismay, you know, in the last few months, this was written four years ago, all of a sudden they're saying, oh, we have a 40% chance of hitting a 1.5 degree rise in the next 10 years. And we've already built in several uh, you know, feet of sea level rise. And understand when this book was written, none of that was actually a reality. This was just coming through right at the time when I was doing it. But I wanted to make sure that I could bring home the points, give people pictures of what the suffering would look. You know, it's one thing to talk about there's you know, global climate change and we're gonna destroy farmlands. But if you start describing it in pictures of the suffering of people, so you get a picture of it. And then you say like, this is happening, but looking back, this is how we could have prevented it. And you do it, you know, and again, I don't wanna give away too many of the chapters and how I did this, but doing it in a way that I can share the science and also do it in a humorous fashion, because you, you know about the climate change summit and everything that we talked about in the book. There's a way to get the message across giving science, giving solutions, but doing it with humor, right? And it, it just felt like I needed to always provide solutions, but always because the primary motivation when I wrote this was I have to help these kids with climate grief to know they have hope. And you know from the Lyme community, one of the most terrible things that has ever happened with Lyme is there are kids that suicide every year from Lyme disease. I mean, my God, Bob Bransfield has talked about this as have other people that, these, these kids lose hope. They don't feel like there's ever going to be a solution. And oh my God, there are solutions. You know, they need to know that how can I get better gives a map for this. The Dapsone and the Disulfiram protocols and the new things coming down the pike with Aslocillin, Hygromycin, there are solutions. They should never lose hope and they should never lose hope with the climate because I have found scientific solutions, those four pillars that we talked about today. So I always wanted to make sure that I put those solutions in there, but I was conscious 
that if God forbid humanity did not follow the advice that I have in this book, that I needed to protect the minds of these kids and the future generations. And therefore, when I was writing it, I thought back to these 10 years of Mahamudra retreat that my wife and I did with the venerable uh, Trunga Rinpoche, where we learned these techniques from um, Kempo Gangshra 100 years ago that were used right before an invasion, right before tremendous suffering. How do we help minds to be stable? How do we help minds to not go into anger and despair and fear? And I said, you know something? I not only need to protect the environment and give solutions, I need to protect people's minds. That if God forbid, I am not successful in my journey and I pray to the Lyme community listening to this, please get behind me in this global call to action that the climate and what we can do together as every group, every Lyme patient in the US and world, every Lyme organization has ever been there, we can come together on this and make a difference. First in our country, to lead the way, but I realized if God forbid it didn't happen, I was gonna have to provide enlightened meditation trainings that was given a hundred years ago that would allow these kids to wake up. But then I also thought, well, what if I also gave these solutions? I call it the 1% global climate solution. And it's on my website, www.starseed, one word, dash revolution.com. It's called the 1% global climate solution. Then I realized, well, what if people didn't want to adopt these solutions? These kids are all saying, we don't feel empowered, right? What can we do? But then I realized, oh my God, these teachings actually empower people that if I got 1% of the global, you know, global um, population to do this with the empowerment that I'm providing in the book, we could actually use quantum physical principles to change from internal reality to external to actually shift what's gonna happen. And there were published studies, by the way, during the Israeli-Lebanon war, these are published in medical journals with people doing the TM City technique. They found that when they put a certain number of meditators in coherence, in coherence and consciousness where the left and right brain were in coherence doing this technique, in the surrounding area, there was less war, there was less conflict, there was less deaths, there was better social conditions, um, more financial, things got better. It was all of a sudden, social variables started changing by people meditating. And many of these, by the way, got published through Harvard University. So it's not even that it's some like new agey concept that no one has ever explored this before. The Global Climate Initiative has been done way before I came around showing that there is a way to get in glo the global coherence initiative of let's go into a global coherent meditative state using these proven meditation techniques by that were given in fact from initial Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha 2,600 years ago in an unbroken lineage. And this is important from the Kagyu lineage. The teachings that are being transmitted have never not been transmitted from Lama to disciple during the last 2,600 years. They're intact. They are powerful. The power has never been broken. They are being transmitted in this book that if they are practiced and I could get enough kids, just let's say the kids alone who have climate grief, 1%, if they did this every day, we might actually be able to see effect change apart from, of course, instituting the scientific solutions. So I realized when I was writing the book, this was just naturally coming through that there was like a multifaceted approach that I was trying to do to provide solutions, physical solutions, scientific solutions, emotional solutions, 
and even meditative solutions if I couldn't get people to institute the solutions right on a physical scientific basis that, okay, I'm going to empower these people. I'm going to tell them, let's work it from the inside out. So that's how it kind of naturally evolved when the book was being written. That's beautiful. That really is beautiful. So Dr. Arnold, we promised we wouldn't make you late for your ping pong match with your wife. And unfortunately, we're already four minutes into her time. So we are, we are going to thank you for uh, writing this beautiful book. And the last thing I'd ask you to do uh, is share with our listeners where they can get uh, Starseed Revolution, The Awakening. So it is on Amazon. Um, you can just pre-order the book. And, and the reason I'm asking people to pre-order is because I'm asking you to get me a voice in the climate dialogue. To be clear, I don't need to be a famous author. I'm not doing this for money. You should be absolutely clear on this. The only reason this book is written is to benefit you, to benefit your families and future generations, to empower you. But I would like to have a voice in the climate dialogue. So when I get on news programs, I've got two Fox interviews coming up, one Fox News Chicago, one for Good Day New York. There's interviews I'm going to be doing. I need to highlight that climate is increasing Lyme and tick-borne. This is not being talked about in the mainstream media. I need to highlight that these environmental toxins that are dumped are creating a problem with biodiversity, with species going down and making all of you Lyme patients sick. And I need to highlight the fact that there are solutions right now that are not being talked about that if we instituted them now, people are acting as if this is a done deal that we've got, you know, we're gonna get a several foot sea level rise and coastal flooding and more wildfires. It is not true. This is not a done deal. If we act now and we institute these solutions, it is not too late. But we need to get everyone involved and I need to get a voice in the climate dialogue to tell people this. And if you wanna see the scientific solutions, I have them on my website in blogs about climate injustice is racial injustice, what's happening with climate and Lyme disease, what are the problems, what are the solutions? It's on starseed-revolution.com. But I would ask you, please pre-order the book, get it now, because that first couple of weeks coming out is really important. And tell everyone you know about this, because the more I can get a voice in the climate dialogue, the more I can help you. And, and this is really me working on your behalf, as I have for the last 35 years. And now we're going to come together in a completely new way, empowering you that we're going to make a difference in the world in a way that I don't think we ever could have done before. So, so thank you for listening and for working together and what is really a global call to action, which is not only going to benefit you, but benefit the world at large. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, author, Dr. Richard Horowitz. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Richard Horowitz and the Starseed Revolution, please visit his Instagram page at Dr. Richard Horowitz, one word. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us on the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.